For those who do not know me, my name is Tom Sylvia, the associate pastor here at Eshore. Normally, it is Pastor John Toon up here, but occasionally he gets to sit back and, uh, you know, be a good critic. And I'm very grateful for him. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, well, today, so you got me today. You have me. And I'll be continuing our series in the book of Mark. Here at Eshore, we believe in expositional preaching, which means we go, we pick a book, we go verse by verse, thought for thought, figuring out and diving in what does the author, what is his main point of the text, and how is he, this author, pointing us to Christ? And that's what we're doing in the book of Mark. In some books, it's a lot easier than others because the book of Mark is all about Jesus, his gospel story from when he starts to when he dies and rises again from the grave. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 34. We'll be on page 994 in the Bibles that's in the chairs in front of you. So if you don't have one, you can use one of those. That's page 994, Mark chapter 1, 21 through 34. So in according to, with our tradition, if you are able, please stand as we read this text. Verse 21, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for allowing us to gather here in your name. Thank you, Lord, for the honor of reading your scripture, your words of truth, and how they have just shed light onto the life of your son of how your son has come and destroyed the works of the evil one and has come and brought healing to your people. Thank you for the redemption through the blood of your son and for this gift of salvation we have. Lord, help me, my words, just communicate the truth 
of this text this morning so we can all be edified and encouraged through your word. Use all of us here this morning. Amen. Amen. So before I get going, I feel like I'm hearing a little bit of feedback. So if I need to do anything, tell me now. If not, I'm going to keep going. We'll just enjoy the feedback as I go. So are we good? How's that? Is that a little bit better? We're going to try there. And at any time you need to interrupt me to fix that, just go ahead and do that for me. So here we go. We're asking, we have the series in Mark, and the series titled right now is Who is Jesus? Now, not every sermon is going to be explicitly focused on answering that question, who is Jesus? But for this morning, we will be focusing on it. And I've said this before, this question of who is Jesus, when answered correctly and properly comprehended, that will reward the asker tenfold. Who is Jesus? Perhaps you already have answered this in your mind and you could answer with my Savior, my God and my Lord, my friend, my helper, my righteousness, my sanctification, my healer, my intermediator, my intercessor, my joy, my treasured possession. And we can continue to go more and more giving out more names of who this great God is, and all of them are correct. And I think it's appropriate to quote Isaiah 9-6, where we read every Christmas, For to us a child is born. Who is Jesus? He's fully man. To us a son is given. Jesus is a gift to us. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, Jesus is our king and sovereign ruler, and his name shall be called. Each one of these names tells us about who Jesus is. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That this is our Jesus who is in this very room right now as we are gathered as his bride, the church. It is him who we are worshiping, singing, and praying to in this room right now. So this is our Jesus. And with this kind of as a backdrop, let us grow in our knowledge of Jesus and explore two more titles that he is given in Scripture or roles he fulfills. And these two that we're going to explore today are we're going to see first that Jesus is the commander of the Lord's army. And second, Jesus is the resident physician of the Lord's infirmary. Now, the titles aren't explicitly mentioned in our text, but the functions are. So let's begin. We're going to begin with the first. Jesus is commander of the Lord's army. I got my bachelor's degree from Columbia International University, which CIU for short, which is a Bible college in Columbia, South Carolina. It's where I met my wife, Carissa, and we had our daughter, Evie, all those years ago. And I loved my time at CIU. I absolutely loved it and the lifelong friendships that have come from that school. 
And at that time, what set CIU apart from other Bible colleges was their emphasis on missions and the international student population that was there. I had friends from all over the world and still have them. Uh, some have returned back to, uh, gone back overseas. I have friends in Chad, China, Indonesia, France, Mexico, Italy, some in Russia, all of whom I met in my time at CIU. And CIU, with that being its ethos then, all of us had to take a class on world missions. And basically, it was a class on how to spread the gospel overseas and uh, outside of your cultural environment. And one of the days, my professor of that missions class was speaking about missions in Africa. And during that class, he posed this question to the class. What is the most well-known verse among the believers in Africa? And, you know, we didn't know, so we just assumed it was that of what we would say in, here in America, John 3.16. All of us in here could probably quote John 3.16 without looking. Well, we said that, and he said we were incorrect. He said the verse is 1 John 3.8, which is what we read. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And just a few weeks ago, we had our annual packing party for the Operation Christmas Child. And at this uh, packing party, Pastor Dan showed a YouTube video which explained how the, the, the shoeboxes impacted the lives all around the world of these kids that were getting them and how these shoeboxes were opening the door for churches to share the gospel to these kids. And the video we watched was filmed in Africa and it had a group of kids in a boat, uh, like a canoe-like boat. And the kids were overjoyed and celebrated that they had received a shoebox. And part of their celebration included a song, and I'm not gonna sing these words because I wanna keep you guys in the room, but it had these words in it the kids were singing, Jesus is going to shoot that devil down. <laughs> now, I use these examples because they illustrate this spiritual, this reality of spiritual warfare in a way that we can often overlook here in American culture. It's, the, it's what we see happening in this passage that we've just read. Jesus is confronting a demon. It is a real truth that happens in this world. And we're going to explore this confrontation. Now, just a few verses prior, we already saw Jesus having a showdown between the prince of demons, Satan himself, and here Jesus overcame him with ease and is reigning victoriously. So we already know that this little demon is going to be no match for our Lord. But, you know what, it seems like the demons themselves cannot come to terms with this reality. I mean, look at who started this fight. Was it the demon or was it Jesus? Well, it was the demon. The demon was experiencing the truth and the authority of the scriptures being taught by the very source of all truth and authority, Jesus Christ himself. If anything, the response should be joy such as the people around him. However, 
When evil or sin is confronted with the truth, they cannot hear it nor bear it because evil shelters itself with the screams of chaos. Look at the flow of this text. We learn Jesus enters Capernaum in verse 21. And then he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. So verses 28 or verses 21 through verses 28 all take place within this synagogue. And what is he doing in the synagogue? He's teaching. And how are the people responding? Well, verse 22 says they're responding with, they were astonished, absolutely amazed at the authority of which this man teaches. However, in verse 23, Mark, the author, inserts this word immediately. He loves using this word. And he inserts it to contrast the response of the demon with that of the people. The people are amazed by the words of God while the demon is consumed with hatred by the truth of God's word. And in verse 23, we see what is his response, this demon's response. He cannot help but do one thing. He cries out. And this Greek word that you see in your, the, the, the English words cried out in the Greek, verse 23, has this connotation of a loud, scratchy screech. This demon has that scratchy screech that you would almost hear in like a horror movie. That type of screech is made by this demon in a burst of anger. And in his anger, what does he do to our Lord? Well, he attempts to take control of the situation by using two methods. One way, he declares his innocence before Jesus. And then the other one, he tries to subject Jesus to his authority and his rule, both of which fail. Let's analyze this response and we'll see it. Verse 24, let me reread it. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The phrase, what have you to do with us, is essentially Jesus, or the demon saying, Jesus, what have I done to you? I mean, in fact, not what have I done to you. What have any of us demons done to you? We haven't bothered you in the slightest, so you need to leave us alone. We're going to stay out of your business, so you stay out of yours. That's what this statement means. It's a very common statement. And let me just read the, the statement in the Old Testament. Uh, and I think it'll, you'll get the, hear what I'm, the point. It's in the story of Elijah. And what, it's where Elijah raises the widow's son back to life in 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17, 17 through 18. This is a little interaction where the widow finds out what happens to her son. Verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. You hear the widow? What, what have you, Elijah, the prophet of God, what do you have against me that I am now losing my son? Why are you doing this to me? I, mean, I haven't done anything to you, and now this has happened. Well, this very, she didn't deserve it. That's what she's saying. Well, this very sentence, what have you against me, is the same way the demon is talking to Jesus right now. So the demon thinks he's innocent. The demon, since he's innocent in his mind, he's like, Jesus, I'm innocent. Leave me alone inside of everyone in the synagogue. And so now everyone 
He's thinking everyone is going to be on his side. He, because he's innocent, he doesn't deserve any kind of just punishment. I mean, he's not necessarily done anything to Christ directly. It is very likely that this demon and Jesus are meeting for the first time in Jesus' incarnate state. However, what evil fails to understand is that any evil, whether in word, thought, or deed, is an evil committed against the holy God. Any evil done to God's creation is an attack on God himself. So let me show you, let me show you what I mean with this. Let me go back to King David in Psalm 51, where he is repenting of his sin when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had killed Uriah. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for you know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Against you, you only, have I sinned, Lord. What does David mean by this? Well, David clearly has sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, and other parties involved to make this sin happen. But that is, and David's not denying that. That's not what David's point is, because what he's getting at is the heart of the law of God. What does God's law say? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. David's sin was a rebellion against God's law. David's sin was essentially saying to God, I think your law is wrong. You are wrong. And because I disagree with your law, God, I am going to create and obey my own law. I'm going to commit adultery, and I'm going to murder. That is what sin, that's what happens when we sin. We're rebelling against God's law, and we are becoming a law unto ourselves. The demons are no different. Just like Satan, this demon wants to obey his own law and his own desires, ignoring and disobeying God's law. Therefore, this demon is guilty before God. So is this demon correct in saying that he hasn't done anything to Jesus? Absolutely not. He has disobeyed God's law, and he has followed in the footsteps of his father, the, the, the devil. And attempting, not only is he disobeying God's law, but he's attempting, just like his father, to destroy God's people. Now, how do you think this squares away with God. God responds the same way now as he did to Satan back in Genesis. He brings down his almighty wrath against all evil whenever evil attacks his creation. After Satan, let me just, let's just go back and relook at this. After Satan deceived Adam and Eve, God struck Satan with a heavy curse. Let me read Genesis 3, 14 through 15. And the Lord God said to the serpent, this is God speaking to Satan, okay? Satan embodied the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, verse 15 is referring to Satan and Jesus. Satan will strike Jesus, but ultimately Satan will be crushed by the Son of God. Verse 15 is what we call the Proto-Evangelium, which basically means it's the first verse referencing the gospel. Proto, first, Evangelium is evangelism, or evangel, which is the good news. And when we say we're going to go evangelize, we're going to go spread the good news, the gospel. And so verse 15 is the first appearance of the gospel. Let's look at verse 14, though, however. I'm going to read just an excerpt from Andrew Fuller. He is considered one of the greatest Baptist theologians of the 19th century, and he comments on verse 14 regarding Satan's curse. He says, The form under which Satan is cursed is that of the serpent. To a superficial reader, it might appear that the vengeance of heaven was directed against the animal, distinguishing him from all cattle, subjecting him to a most abject life, condemning him to creep upon his belly, and of course to have his food be smeared with dust. But was God angry with the serpent? No. But as under that form Satan had tempted the woman, so that shall be the form under which he shall receive his doom. The spirit of the, sen- the, spirit of the sentence appears to be this. Cursed are you, Satan, above all creatures, above every being that God has made. Miserable shall you be, Satan, to an endless duration. Translation, Satan, you attempted to destroy my special creation, who I made in my image, my righteous, my holiness, my infinite wrath shall never be quenched from before you because you disturbed my people. You shall only ever know misery and my wrath, and it will grow infinitely worth for all eternity. That is the vengeance of heaven directed upon someone that affects, impacts, challenges, hurts his people. Revelation 2010 speaks to this. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And what happens? They, were, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Our God does not play games. He does not relax nor hold back his mighty hand when his children are attacked by Satan or any one of his henchmen. So here we are in Mark with this demon standing face to face with Jesus, thinking he has not bothered Jesus in the slightest. But within the very being of Christ, there is a great justice directed upon him, declaring his innocence is foolishness for this demon. And before we see how Jesus responds, I want to quickly look at this other tactic that this demon uses to try and overcome uh, Jesus right here. He does this by subjecting Jesus to his rule. As if the foolishness of declaring innocence was enough, he's going to go one step further and try and become the ruler of Christ. (laughs) He's already in the lion's realm. Why not prod him a little more, you know? Sin is blinding. 
verse 24, the demon openly declares Jesus' identity. The Holy One of God. Why does the demon do this? Well, is it, is it, is it because all the demons know who Jesus is? While that is true, they all acknowledge the deity of Christ. That is not why he's doing this. This very name is his attempt to gain dominance, to gain power over Jesus. I'm going to read just from a, a commentary, and this is from William Lane. The recognition formula, you know, that is this name, Holy One of God, is not a confession but a defensive attempt to gain control of Jesus in accordance with the common concept of that day, that the use of the precise name of an individual or a spirit would secure mastery over him. And you, you can see this, you hear this whenever you watch perhaps Egyptian documentaries or shows. Often the sorcerer, the Pharaoh will say this, in the name of Ra, their supposed sun god. Or think about any type of conjuring they always declare some powerful name because by doing that by declaring this name they believe that they are obtaining this deity's power that's why they always say in the name of in the power of or how about this when many of you growing up and you were a kid and uh, you got in trouble okay and I mean like you got in serious trouble you could tell the difference between trouble and serious trouble. The, the trouble was just like a parent calls for you and you only get like a hey, or a hey you, or maybe even your first name. And you're just like, okay, I can play that off a little bit longer. But then you're in serious trouble. What do you get? You get the first, you get the middle, and you get the last name, and you might even get a couple things more. Then you knew, oh, I'm listening. There is no second guessing. It's okay, yes, yes ma'am, yes sir. It's the power of the name. This is what our demon re resorted to using. He was out of options, resorting to bullying tactics. So this is his strategy. How does, how does the commander of the Lord's army respond to this? How does he handle this tactic? He speaks. In verse 25, Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. The demon attempts to use words to overcome Jesus, but fails. Jesus, the word made flesh, speaks and conquers. Jesus doesn't use any names, just his authority. The authority at which first made this demon uncomfortably and directly is now directly aimed at overcoming him. No more words from the demon and no more host. This demon is defeated. Jesus speaks confrontation over there's no drawn-out process here as one could expect when we read this. In fact, as we read this text, it's as if Jesus didn't even have to try. If anything, our author, Mark, is wanting us to be amazed by the sovereignty, the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. He not only teaches with authority, but that his authority is so grand that even the demons must obey him. Do you remember what happened in the story of David and Goliath. Goliath was the champion of the Philistines. The Philistines were proud of Goliath. And because they had Goliath, they had confidence in their, their, their troops, their attacks, their army. And then on the other side were the Israelites. And 
every one of them were afraid of this big Goliath. So they were scared of the Philistine army as a whole. One man was able to sway the imagination of a whole army. But then comes along David. He, David doesn't cower in fear, but stands up for the Lord. He goes into battle not even with an armor or a sword, but five smooth stones and a sling. The Philistine army rallies behind Goliath with the assurance and an arrogance that this little shepherd boy was about to die. But to everyone's surprise, what could have been a big climactic battle, there was no struggle, there was no tension. David just throws one stone at Goliath, hits him in the forehead, and boom, Goliath falls. What happens? What happens to the armies? The Philistines were stupefied in fear. Once bold and courageous, now timid and cowardly, they turn, they turn and flee. The Israelites were the opposite. They were afraid. Now they rally and charge to victory. All because of David. Before, we were afraid of Satan and his allies. They had power over us. What could we do against this demonic spiritual realm? We had no choice but to submit to their wills, just as this man in our text was possessed by a demon. He had no choice but was subjected to the greater power. But a greater David has come. A greater warrior king is here. David needed a stone, but our God needs only words. Describing our commander in Revelation 19, 15, from his mouth, this is Jesus, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus is not coming with some medieval-like sword sticking out of his mouth. He's coming with his word. His word will conquer enemies. His word will bring all rebellious nations and all evil to their knees. It's the power of his words. Just like David and the Goliath, the tides have turned between us and the demons. The demons now flee and tremble because of our warrior king. They retreat to the waterless, lifeless places because our Savior is here. Jesus has come to destroy the works of Satan. And all we need to do, unlike the Israelites, they charge after the Philistines. Unlike them, all we need to do is stand back and worship. Jesus is pursuing all of the principalities, the prince of the power of the air, and we stand in awe. He is slaying them. We watch and give him glory. This is who our Jesus is. I want to make one quick point before I move on to the, the next title about Jesus being the resident physician. And that's, that's this. is the way that the demon responded the way he did. The demon is an embodiment of evil. And why did he respond like he did? Ultimately, he was trapped. He felt trapped. He was confronted with the truth and the truth of his evil acts and wanted to be free of that judgment. So what does he do? Well, all Jesus was to him was a prison. All Jesus was to this demon was a prison. Jesus, 
this demon wants his freedom and his to be alone. He didn't want to be ruled, but to rule. This is the way wickedness, sin, sees our Savior. This is how sin views Jesus as a trap, a prison. Have you ever heard the statement, I don't need a Bible. I don't need a system or a religion of do's and don'ts. I want to be free because they hear this as a trap. They want to be free. What they're saying is they want to be free to live their rules their way when in reality they are trapped in their own sin and too blind to recognize it. It is only Jesus who can get them out. Let me read a quote from Thomas Brooks. Sin so bewitches the soul that it makes the soul call evil good and good evil, bitter sweet and sweet bitter, light darkness and darkness light. And the soul thus bewitched with sin will stand, at, will stand out to the death, stand it out to the death, and at the sword's point with God. Let God strike and wound and cut to the very bone, yet the bewitched soul cares not, fears not, but will still hold on its course of wickedness. To them, to the evil, when confronted with the truth, they think it's a battle between themselves and God, and they think they will win. However, they are foolish. And what they're seeing God as this arrogant ruler that wants to put them in a trap, they miss this next section. They miss that our God isn't this overbearing warlord, but a compassionate God full of mercy and tenderness and is stretching out his love and grace for his people. They only see this evil in this Lord, which doesn't exist, and they miss out on his goodness, his compassion, and his grace. Our second title, Jesus is the resident physician of the Lord's infirmary. In verse 25, Jesus leaves the synagogue, this confrontation, and goes to Simon and Andrew's house. Now remember, Simon and Andrew just accepted the call to follow Jesus 10 verses earlier. So why are they going to their house? Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. How sick is this? How sick is she? Well, we don't know. It could be a severe fever that could take her life, or it could be one she overcomes within a couple of days. It just says it's a high fever. Okay, we don't, we don't know the extent of it. Either one is possible, and either one, the point is the same. The Lord takes compassion and will do so regardless of the sickness. Look at verse 31 with me. And he, Jesus, came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. What different interactions just have taken place? Moments ago, Jesus was conversing with a demon whose greatest nightmare was to serve him. Now he is with this woman who is just lying in bed, sick and aching, and immediately upon being healed, gets up to serve our Lord. Two different views of Jesus are present right now. One is afraid of the mighty hand of God, while the other receives an outstretched arm that brings healing. And God, Scripture reveals both of these truths about our God's hands. Exodus 15, 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. We just saw it. 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares 
for you. The same hand that is out fighting is the same hand here healing and holding us. We serve a warrior king who has come to the front lines and lead us to victory while at the same time staying back with you and I, bringing comfort, healing, and compassion to each one of us. Jesus isn't limited in his person that he can only fill one job title at a time or one function at a time, but limitless in his grandeur that he can do all things all the time. He's not taking a break from fighting the enemies to heal his children, nor is he, healing, ta- nor is he taking a break from healing his children to go fight. He's accomplishing both missions. Verse 32 and 34. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door because he had healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. It's not either or, but it's both and. Also, look at the start of verse 32. It's the entire city. It's not just some person coming along down the street, but the whole city. And it's not just one disease or one man uh, with a demon. It's all of them. And when do they come to him? It's at sundown. It's not like Jesus just had a fresh night of sleep and he wakes up with a yawn, cup of tea, and then gets to work. He's just had a long day. It's sundown. It's time to sleep. But no, here they all come. What does he do? He does his job because he's a compassionate God, always at work. He finishes the job. He can rest later. Isaiah 57, 18 through 19. I have seen his ways, but I, Christ, I will heal him. I will lead him. I will restore comfort to him. His mourners creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. I will heal. Jesus will heal. You know, I can only imagine on Capernaum this night, not many people slept. After they were healed, I could only imagine a feast taking place. The streets overjoyed, singing at every place. Just comparing the sicknesses. Oh, we're healed. Yay! You know, my only guess, too, that the cries of the demon were long forgotten and replaced by the joys, the cheers, and the gladness of celebration throughout the whole night. (laughs) Jesus is a God of compassion that's come to set us free from our sin and the results of sin. Our sin wants to twist the identity of Christ. Our sin wants to follow in the likeness of Satan and likeness of demon and look at Jesus as an enemy, as one that is after, after us, to make us uncomfortable, to take away our sin's spot in the center of our hearts. Our sin forgets and doesn't care to look at the goodness of Christ. So... Don't be like the demons. Don't give in to your sin and twist the nature and identity of Christ. So who is Jesus? He is Jehovah Rapha, the Hebrew name for God, my healer. 
He has come to take away the sins of the world, the pains of the world, to conquer the prince of the power of the air and to release us from the bonds of the evil one. Jesus has come to shoot that devil down and bringing us to eternal life where there will be no disease or illness. The question before you today is, do you believe in this Jesus? He is the commander of the Lord's army, and he is the resident physician of the Lord's infirmary, always at work and ready to heal. Come, come to him. Let me pray. Lord, thank you, Lord that you are a warrior king, that you are not just leaving us to powers that are beyond our strengths and limits, but that, Lord, that you are ferociously in the fury of the wrath of God coming to destroy the works of Satan and all his henchmen. That, Lord, and not only that, but, Lord, you have come and paid the price for our sin. Lord, you have sent your son as a ransom, as a substitution in our place so that we can experience you as our healer, that we have a throne of grace, that we have eternal life, rejoicing and celebrating all your works, your good deeds, and your love that is directed upon us always. Lord, we just thank you for that. Help, help us, Lord, each and every one of us, Lord, our minds to grow in this understanding of you so we can worship you more and more and more. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, that runs from you, Lord, change their heart. Change their heart, Lord, so that they can embrace you. We love you, Lord. Amen.